we are going to be eating, drinking, and sleeping Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I will say this to you. It is one of the most incredible letters in all of the New Testament. It is extremely Christ-centered and it's literally saturated with the Lord Jesus. Tonight what I'm going to do is give you the historical background to this letter and why it came into existence. I'm going to tell you why that's important. Because before we plunge in, we have to understand who the Colossians were, why Paul wrote it, when he wrote it. Because if you don't understand the historical background, you're going to miss a lot of things in the letter that will not make sense. And you have to remember that letter was written 2,000 years ago. A long time. (laughs) Things were very different back then. Paul Tarsus didn't write it in a vacuum. Something provoked the letter. And to be able to understand what is in it, we need to get a little uh, history lesson. Now, let me explain to you our objective here. We are not seeking to study the book of Colossians. I'm sure that there are, right now as we speak, scores of Bible studies on Colossians going on right now. There's so many we can't even number them. We are seeking to discover the Christ of Colossians. Big difference. We are seeking to encounter, explore, learn, fellowship with, commune with the Christ that Colossians presents to us. Let me put it to you this way. The letter of Colossians is not the destination. It's a compass pointing to a person. And that person is the foundation upon which the church is built. So, keep that in mind. Is a map of Paul's third apostolic journey, which some use the term missionary journey, which is a fairly recent term. It was not really a missionary journey at all. It was a church planting trip, an apostolic trip. And to give you some background, I have in the top right-hand corner, 47 to 49 A.D. was trip number one. And right underneath there, I have the word Galatia circled. What Paul Tarsus did, he was sent out from Antioch of Syria with Barnabas. They both went to this region called Galatia. And they went to four cities, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In the region of Galatia, they planted four churches, one per city. That was his first trip. That's what he did. It took two years. Now, he only spent four to five months in each of those cities preaching the gospel to heathens and Jews. Four to five months. That's all he spent. And he planted four churches in Galatia, and then he left them on their own. He left them on their own without a pastor. Now, this is documented. This is, there's no dispute about this. There was no pastor over these churches. I want to describe to you what the people were like in that day. First of all, 95% of the people in that day were illiterate. They couldn't read. 50% were slaves. The average age of a woman lifespan now was 38 years old. <coughs> A 30-year-old woman in that day would look 50 or 60 by our standards. The average age of a man was 45 years old. The average height of a man in that day was 5 foot to 5 foot 2 inches. 
The average height of a woman was 4.8 inches. The reason? Malnutrition. 50% of every child that was born died before the age of five. Pestilence, famine were very common. It was a very miserable day in which to live. And the people whom Paul brought the gospel to in Galatia, most of them were heathens and pagans. Which means they lived in immorality. They followed their pagan gods, which included wife swapping. They were very unhappy, very selfish. And they didn't have much hope. The idea of freedom was not a concept in that time. They didn't have leather Bibles. In fact, the Bible, the New Testament, wasn't even written. And the Old Testament was very scarce. You can find scrolls in synagogues, but they were tied to the lecterns. So it was very rare to have a Bible. Now the Jews had memory, good memories, and they memorized portions of it when they went to the synagogue and they grew up with it. But the heathen pagans didn't know Adam from Moses or Moses from Adam. They, they didn't even know who Adam was. So Paul went into that environment with that kind of people for four months or five if he was there a little longer, preached the gospel and then left this new church alone for a year and a half, sometimes two years. And here's the interesting thing. When he was gone, some Jews from Jerusalem visited all the churches in Galatia. They were zealous for the law of Moses. And they told those people in Galatia, this guy Paul, we know who he is. Oh, we know him well. He didn't tell you the whole gospel. He didn't tell you the whole truth. See, we live in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was risen from the dead. And we live with the twelve apostles who lived with Jesus for three and a half years. They're our friends. Paul didn't tell you the whole thing. See, he forgot to tell you about the knife circumcision now that's just a small piece of what happened and that's what provoked Paul to write a letter in the New Testament which has the name Galatians and those were the people he wrote to those churches were probably between 20 and 40 people very small and he wrote Galatians to set the record straight and he basically said You've heard a false gospel. I've given you the true gospel. And let me tell you about Jerusalem. <laughs> he went in, he responded to everything they were saying. Now, right now, I have just given you the value of knowing the history behind a letter. Because you can go back and read Galatians, having heard a little bit of the story, and you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is like a new book. I, I never saw this in here. Now it makes sense, see? And the whole New Testament is like that. There's a story behind it. The book, this book right here, Untold Story of the New Testament Church. I'm not going to be telling you the whole story that's in here about the background to Colossians. I'm going to give you bits and pieces of it. I'm going to give you a summary of it because it's too long. We'll be here for three hours if I unfolded the entire background to Colossians. But that was the first journey. And you can read more about it in here if you so wish. The second journey, Paul took a break after he planted the churches in Galatia. The second journey, he goes to Greece. Now, if you look at your map, you go to the left, the far, far left. I mean, way out 
on the top there, you see there's Greece. It's broken up into two parts. Macedonia at the top, and on the bottom is Greece also, where you see Corinth. That's Achaia. So northern Greece is Macedonia. Southern Greece is Achaia. And he was there for two years. He went with Silas this time. This was his second trip from 50 to 52 AD. And he planted four churches. The church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Berea, and the church in Corinth. And you can see them if you look real carefully. And I'm not going to tell you the story of those, but they're fascinating to find out. Okay, then Paul goes to Jerusalem was back to Antioch, and now he goes on his third trip. And this is what's going to concern us here. He goes on his third trip, which is to Asia Minor. And if you look at the top near the Black Sea, I wrote in Asia Minor. And also in the Mediterranean Sea in the bottom, that's Asia Minor too. That whole middle section of this map is Asia Minor. And he was there for three years from 54 to 57. This is his third trip. Now let me tell you what happens when he's in Asia Minor. He goes to the city of Ephesus. And he spends three years there. And he does a lot of things in Ephesus. But while he's there, two men come into town. One of them, his name is Philemon. He's a businessman. He's married to a woman named Aphia. And he has a son named Archippus. Well, Philemon comes into town. And Paul is preaching every day in this little school this hall called Tyrannus's Hall. He's dialoguing with people and he's sharing the gospel. He meets Philemon and he leads him to Jesus Christ. And Philemon becomes a Christian. Philemon has a slave. Now we don't know if he bought the slave in Ephesus. He may have. But for um, $50,000, does anybody know the name of the slave that Philemon owns? Okay, Milt will give you a check for $50,000 after the meeting. Onesimus, which means profitable. So he probably said, well, this kid is going to be profitable for me. (laughs) Helpful, so I'm going to name him helpful. Profitable. So he names him Onesimus. Onesimus does not become a Christian. Well, there's another man with Philemon, and his name is Epaphras. Epaphras becomes a Christian, too. Paul leads him to the Lord. And we don't know the details, but let's just speculate. They're both from Colossae, which is 100 miles of Ephesus. Ephesus is 100 miles west. Colossae is 100 miles east. They go back to Colossae. And I think Epaphras stayed with Paul for a while because Paul was training young men there. Uh, You ever heard of a guy named Timothy? How about a guy named Titus? They were in Ephesus being mentored and trained by Paul for three years. And the scripture says that all of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord through Paul. Because what he was doing, he was there in Ephesus preaching the gospel and training these young men. But these young men were going out all over Asia Minor in the, um, the neighboring towns. And they planted churches in places like Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Pergamos. And you meet them in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. They all came out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And uh, these young men went and planted these churches. Well, anyway, Philemon goes back home to Colossae, takes Onesimus with him. And Epaphras stays on because he wants to learn from Paul. He just became a Christian. This is a very gifted guy. We're going to guess here. We don't know how long he stayed, but I'll say eight months. Just learning from Paul of Tarsus, sitting at the premier church planter's feet. 
he goes back. Epaphras goes back to his hometown in Colossae. And what does he do? He shares this living Christ who he just met with his neighbors. Philemon is already a Christian. Philemon opens up his home and says, we can start meeting in my house. And Archippus, who is Philemon's son, is a very gifted young man and grows very quickly in the Lord. And now there's a group meeting. Now, we have no idea how large the church in Colossae was. But in that day, churches, with the exception of Jerusalem, Antioch, and Ephesus, were very small between, say, 15 people and 40 people. Corinth was probably 50, maybe. It was larger than normal. But we're just going to say, since we don't know, we're just going to put an average number on it. We're going to say there's 25 believers meeting in Colossae. And they're meeting in the home of Philemon. Epaphras planted that church. And they're mostly pagan, ex-pagans, because Colossae is mostly a Gentile city. Now, there is a sizable Jewish community there. They probably have a few synagogues, but it's not terribly large. The percentage of Jews in the Roman Empire were very small compared to Gentiles. So we'll say there's a few Jews there that got saved. Okay, so now they're meeting, and Epaphras is sharing all he can with them to help them. Epaphras is such a gifted young man that he plants two other churches in neighboring towns. Now, if you get this sheet and you turn it over, you will see we're zeroing in on the city of Colossae. And you will see north of Colossae a city called Herapolis. And south of that is a city called Laodicea. Anybody ever heard of the church in Laodicea? Where did you hear that from? Revelation. Right. That's the famous, you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> well, this is before that happened. Okay. Epaphras. What's that? Is it in the book of Colossians 2? Yeah, it is. Yes. Epaphras planted the church not only in Colossae, his hometown, but he planted a church in Heropolis and he planted a church in Laodicea. Now, quite an extraordinary young man. And these towns are very close to each other. Heropolis is only 12 miles north of Colossae. And Laodicea is only 6 miles south of Heropolis. And it's 10 miles away from Colossae. So these, these three towns form somewhat of a triangle. And they're in what's called the Lycus Valley. Because the Lycus River is right there. And Colossae is on the banks of the river. Now, just to tell you a little bit about Colossae. In the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., before the New Testament era... Colossae was a very large and prosperous city. But by the time that the New Testament letter of Colossians is written, it's a very small, insignificant town. It has been trumped and surpassed and upstaged by Laodicea and Heropolis. Laodicea is a very large, prosperous town at this time. It's about 100,000 people. Colossae is much smaller. And what's so interesting is that when Paul wrote this letter, and I'll tell you a little bit of the history of that in a few minutes. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, he wrote it in about 61 A.D. Interestingly, history tells us that in 61 A.D., and this would have had to have been after the letter, because there's no hint of devastation or damage or anything like that in the letter. But in 61 A.D., an earthquake devastated the whole Lycus Valley and destroyed Laodicea and destroyed Colossae and Heropolis. Laodicea was built up very fast, though. Nero sent funds in, and they built it up fast. But basically, the brothers and sisters who this letter was written to, it's very conceivable that 
you know, their homes were destroyed in that earthquake, and maybe they moved to Laodicea. We don't know. It's interesting. So this gives you a picture of the town. Now, Paul stays there for three years in Ephesus. Epaphras plants these three churches. Paul goes to Jerusalem with the men he trained. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know the story. He is apprehended because some Jews want to kill him. He's apprehended by the Roman guards. They save his life because there's a riot that breaks out. And he gets the tar beat out of him. And a Roman soldier helps him and saves his life. And he spends two years in Caesarea in a prison. And then he appeals to Caesar. And now he's on his way to Rome. So now Paul's put in prison in Rome. And, and this is where uh, he writes some of his greatest letters. The letter of Ephesians is written during this time. The letter of Philippians is written during this time in Paul's imprisonment. And Colossians is written in this time. But let's stay with the story and tell you what happened uh, that provoked this letter. The church in Colossae is about four years old now. And there is a teaching that is now circulating the Lycus Valley. And it's infecting Laodicea and it's infecting Colossae. And it is a false teaching. There are some false teachers now that are trying to subvert the message that Epaphras brought, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to these young churches. And... It's effective. The false teaching is effective. The people are gravitating to it, and it's causing confusion. So what does Epaphras do? He knows Paul's in prison. He hasn't seen Paul in a long time. And so he travels to Rome to see Paul. And he makes a stop in Philippi. And if you want to know the story, I talk about it in The Untold Story. And he brings money from Philippi to Rome to give to Paul from the Philippian church. They were the only church that really helped him financially. He loved the Philippian church. The Philippian church is a beautiful church. It was mostly women, by the way. Lydia and her company. Well, Onesimus, who is Philemon's slave, breaks free, runs away, and in that day, it's a capital offense to run away if you're a slave. Okay? It cuts your head off if you're caught. And guess what he does? He follows Epaphras. <laughs> to Rome <laughs> so Epaphras at some point he sees Onesimus and he's like alright I don't want you to get killed young man so he knows who he is obviously Philemon is his friend he knows Onesimus so Epaphras and Onesimus find Paul in Rome and it would be great to be a fly on the wall to hear the conversation but I think it went something like this Paul's so happy to see Epaphras you know they hug and Paul's on house arrest. He's got guards on duty all the time. So he's chained to a, a Roman guard there in Rome. He's in an apartment. And some of the brothers are there. Timothy's there and some other brothers. And Epaphras says, well, let me tell you why I'm here. And by the way, this is when he's missing. He ran away from Philemon. And so um, <laughs> it's interesting what happens. Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. And not only that, but Onesimus now is helping Paul out. You know, I, I don't know what he's doing, but he's helping serve him. And he becomes very profitable to Paul. Epaphras says, listen, I got news from Colossae. I want to tell you what's happening. There is a false teaching that's circulating, and it's catching hold. It's taking root. I don't know what to do about it. I mean, I'm fairly new into this myself. You know, I'm a Christian four or five years. I need your help, brother. 
I need wisdom, I need guidance. And he tells them all about the church in Colossae, all the good things about them. Tells them about their four-year journey. Tells them about how they, upon hearing the gospel, fell in love with the Lord and fell in love with one another. And then he tells them about some of the problems that are happening these four years. And right now, some of the saints are not getting along with each other. And this doctrine is affecting their behavior and it's affecting their viewpoint and they're losing touch with the head, Christ. And he gives them details on what's happening. He also gives them a report about Philippi and how he visited the church there and he gives them the money. So what Paul does is really interesting. In the course of a very short period of time, provoked by this visit from Epaphras and Onesimus, he will write three letters and he will send them by the hand of one of the brothers who's with him, one of the brothers he trained in Ephesus. It's not Timothy or Titus, it's a guy named Tychicus. He's one of the eight men, Paul trained eight men in Ephesus. He's one of the eight men. And he will pen these letters, probably through the hand of Timothy. Paul will dictate, Timothy will write it. The scrolls will be rolled up, and then he will give them to Tychicus, and Tychicus will go to Asia Minor. The three letters he will write and send with Tychicus are as follows. Colossians. Paul has never seen them. He gets the report from Epaphras. And from hearing that report, he falls in love with them and he sees that they are under his care because it is a church in Asia Minor, or where he was for three and a half years. And he feels a responsibility for them because they came to the Lord through Epaphras. So he writes a letter to Colossians and then he writes a real short letter. It's the shortest letter in the New Testament. It's a letter to Philemon. And some, sometime when you don't have anything to do for 10 minutes, read the letter. Because it is clever, humorous, and powerful. And basically what he does in the letter, in essence, is he doesn't say, he doesn't come out and say, take Onesimus back, don't punish him, don't kill him. He doesn't come out and say that, but he hints at it throughout the whole letter. And he says things like, because you owe me your whole life, I'm asking you to receive this young man. Stuff like that, you know. And you read it and you're thinking, man, this guy Paul's a genius. But the way he's doing it, he's hinting out throughout the whole thing. He says, if he's taking any money from you, I will go ahead and pay for it. Don't receive him as a slave, now receive him as a brother because he's not only a Christian now, one of your brothers and one of my brothers, but he's become very helpful to me. It's an interesting letter, but he probably wrote it the same day that he wrote Colossians. And then he writes his magnum opus, which is Ephesians. And uh, I have done a series on this before and some of you heard parts of it. That's a letter to all the churches in Asia Minor and that really contains Paul's gospel. It's his message. It's what he shares when he comes among a new group of Christians. And it is the most incredible thing in the New Testament. And if you want to know what on earth did he preach, what did this guy preach in cities like Galatia, or excuse me, regions like Galatia, to these people who are in such dire straits, who didn't live very long, who were unhappy, who didn't have any hope for life, who couldn't even read and write, What did he preach that brought them together as a church, as a community, and caused them to survive against opposition from their neighbors, opposition from the Jews, 
and all the conflicts that would come from their past. What on earth could he have presented to them that was so glorious and so explosive and so dynamic and so powerful that he could walk out on them after being with them for, what, four or five months and say, see ya, and not come back for a year or two. And they're still there. And the answer is what he wrote in Ephesians was his gospel. And it's incredible. And it's unlike anything that most of us have ever heard in the Christian circles we've been a part of. I know for me, I had never heard anybody preach like what Paul preached in Ephesians. And it wasn't the four spiritual laws, and it wasn't the Romans road, and it wasn't God's holy or not, so try harder. It wasn't any of that. It was something so magnificent, so incredible, so high and glorious. And the interesting thing is that there are pieces of this message that reappear in Colossians. So if you look at Colossians and Ephesians together, you will find that there are a lot of parallels. I think one scholar pointed out that in 155 verses, 73 of them in Colossians have parallels to Ephesians. And there's no doubt in my mind that he wrote it in the same time period, you know, maybe the same week. But Ephesians was more general. It was to all the churches in Asia Minor giving his gospel. And then Colossians was very specific to the problem that the Colossian church was having. So he takes the scrolls, you know, they're tied up, and he gives it to Tychicus, and now Tychicus will come with those letters. He probably had multiple copies of Ephesians. One of the interesting things about Ephesians is in the early manuscripts, there's no greeting. It doesn't say to, like, for example, to the churches in Galatia, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Colossae. It just says to, and there's a blank. And so... Many scholars believe it was a circuit letter, so there were copies made, and Tychicus wrote in the different churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, etc., you see. Some scholars believe that Ephesians, one of the copies went to Laodicea. And so at the end of Colossians, Paul says, have the letter of Laodicea read to you, and have your letter read to the church in Laodicea. See, this false teaching not only affected Colossae, but it also affected Laodicea just you know, a few miles away. Okay, now, that's kind of the big picture. Let me do something. Go ahead and turn to Colossians, if you will. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to introduce you to a, a little um, a tool. We're going to get more specific and find out exactly what these false teachers were teaching the Colossians and what, what was happening among the believers. Uh, that caused Epaphras to feel that the crisis was so great that he had to go visit Paul in Rome and talk to him face to face. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to introduce you to mirror reading. Now mirror reading is a way to look at the scripture to find out the bigger picture of what's going on. Mirror reading is reconstructing the situation going on behind a letter by examining the responses in the letter. And so you're looking at the letter and you're seeing Paul's responses and you're holding it up to a mirror and on the other side of the mirror you're seeing the actual situation that provoked the responses. For example, if Paul says, stop lying to each other in a letter, right? Well, what does that tell you was going on? 
they were lying to each other. Right? You see what I mean? That's what mirror reading is. Is Okay, I'm reading what Paul's saying, so that's telling me what's happening here and what's provoking this letter, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through the letter we're going to mirror read. In the first chapter, he doesn't deal with any problems at all. Yet he is dealing with the problem indirectly. And here's a lesson that is worth its weight in gold. The way that Paul deals with problems is he doesn't directly confront the problem. He unveils Jesus Christ. I'm going to repeat that. He doesn't directly deal with the problem. He reveals Christ. You see, because Christ is the solution to all the problems. And the whole reason in the first place why any of us would go off track or go off the beam is because we've lost sight of Him. We've forgotten Him or we've entertained an idea or concept that has distracted us from Him. He is life. He's reality. He's truth. And so Paul handles problems with Jesus Christ by revealing Christ, by unveiling Christ, by exposing Christ. And that's what he does in this first chapter. It is unbelievable. He shows us the glories, the depths and the riches, the greatness, the sublime reality, the full significance of Jesus Christ. And the result is, when you read this, it just blows everything else off the table. And you have to say, wow, what an incredible Lord. This just isn't the Jesus who died on the cross for my sins and is going to take me to heaven. Isn't that great? That's the Jesus that most Christians know. And incidentally, he's a footnote to most of their lives. I know this because I've been a Christian for a long time. And one of the things that I hear people say so often in my ministry, and Mill can testify this too in his ministry, is... I never saw Christ like this ever. I never heard Christ like this ever. You know, he was sort of an elective class. You know, yes, he's my Savior. Yes, we say he's Lord. But the Christ that Paul presents here is incredible and amazing. No false doctrine can stand on its feet in the presence of so great a Christ. And after he does that, he continues to present Christ... But now he gets more specific. So I'm just going to make references. You can just look at it, but I'm going to uh, conclude. According to chapter 1, verse 23, they were moving away from the hope of the gospel they had heard. According to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says that not only was the Colossian church struggling with these things, and he was struggling for them as a result, but also the church in Laodicea was having the same problem. So the teaching was spreading, okay? Chapter 2, verse 4, some of them were being deluded with persuasive arguments. So these false teachers were very persuasive in what they were saying. And you know that? Most teachings that detract us from Jesus Christ have a persuasive element to it. If you're in the logical mind, you will be persuaded. But your heart knows different. Your heart knows there's something wrong with this. It's not Christ. Now that's if the heart is set on Jesus Christ totally. If the heart isn't, well then the heart's going to go with the mind too, you know. Chapter 2, verse 8. Some of them were being taken captive through philosophy. There was a philosophy circulating 
And Paul calls it empty deception. And it was according to the traditions of men. Humans invented this idea. As they always do when something's false. Of course, it has a little bit of truth to it. You know, every error has a little bit of truth to it. That's what makes it persuasive. <laughs> It's according to the world and it's not according to Christ. In verse 10, they were being told, now here's the heart of it, that they were not complete in Christ. And in verse 11, they were actually being told that they needed to be circumcised. Ouch! Remember, most of these are pagan heathens. They weren't circumcised. That's a painful thing. If you're an adult, the room got real quiet. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 16. They were being judged according to what they ate, food, and what they drank. So this false teaching was saying you have to eat certain things, and you can eat certain things, and you have to drink certain things, and you can't drink certain things. Have you ever heard that before? They also said that you had to observe certain festivals. You're talking about Jewish festivals now, here, saints. And the Sabbath day. Hmm. In verse 18, they were being taught that they had to abase themselves. Self-abasement. And worship angels. And that they had to have visions the real problem in all of this was what they were being taught was causing them not to hold fast to the head Christ verse 19 verse 20 they were being taught to submit themselves to decrees do not handle verse 21 do not taste do not touch don't touch that it'll make you unclean don't handle that it'll make you unclean don't taste that according to verse 22 this teaching was according to the commandments and teachings of men men created these doctrines these laws these rules these decrees it wasn't from Jesus Christ and Paul describes it as self-made religion verse 23 and also he mentions self-abasement and severe treatment of the body Severe treatment of the body. Now I'm going to summarize all that in a minute, but let's look at some of the other problems. Chapter 3, verse 3. They were setting their mind on things that were on earth. They were being consumed with earthly things. This teaching was getting their eyes off of Him, who is heavenly, and setting it on the temporal things of the world. Listen to this, verse 5. It was also bleeding out of their behavior there was problems in the church with immorality, impurity, evil desire, greed, and idolatry. Verse 8, there was anger, wrath, malice, slander. In other words, they were speaking evil of one another. And some were engaging in abusive speech from the mouth. Some translations say filthy communication or vile language. So they were saying things with their mouths that were not edifying. They were abusive, vile, filthy. Verse 9, they were lying to one another. 
Now, not all of them, obviously, but some of them. Chapter 3, verse 12. They were lacking in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13. They were having problems bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And they also, some of them had a real problem with being thankful. Because in verse 15, he mentions at the end, be thankful. And then at the end of 16, he mentions with thankfulness in your heart. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, giving thanks. (laughs) So three times, he's talking about thankfulness. So there's a real issue here of not being thankful among the saints. And then they're having problems in their domestic life. The wives, verse 18, are not relating well to their husbands. The husbands are not loving their wives and they're becoming embittered against them. The children are not being obedient to the parents. The fathers are exasperating the children. Now, not all of them, but there were some. And Paul is dealing with it. The slaves were having issues with their masters and the masters were not treating their slaves with justice and fairness. And, of course, Philemon's in this church now. Remember. And he mentions Thanksgiving again in chapter 4, verse 2. Verse 6, he deals with the speech issue as well. Their speech, some of them, was not with grace, seasoned with salt. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. And where does the church in Laodicea meet? It meets in the home of a woman named Nympha. Nympha. Not to be confused with words we have in the English language that sound like that. And then in verse 17, Say to Archippus, this is Philemon's son, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. It's very possible that Archippus was very gifted in ministry, kind of like a young Timothy, and not only spoke and encouraged the church in Colossae, but went to Laodicea also to encourage them but see he's probably losing heart here because all that what's happening is killing that spirit of sharing Mm -hmm. verse 16 when this letter is read among you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea and that very well could be the letter called Ephesians that was written to all the churches in Asia Minor now let me just make a few points whenever God's people we lose the living touch with the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and get distracted from Him, it starts affecting our behavior. Because, see, He is love. He's patience. He's forgiveness. He's thankfulness. And we lose living touch with Christ, we start living in the flesh, not in the Spirit. And... God's goal is to conform us together, not just as individuals, but together in the image of Christ. And that requires that we learn to live by Him and that we're holding fast to the head. So these other things that are happening that He deals with in chapter 3 and 4 are symptoms. He deals with the root in chapter 1 and 2. You see, see that? Now what was going on here? They were being taught this. They were being taught that in order for you to have the fullness of God, in order for you to be unified with God, you have to perform in a certain way. 
you have got to keep certain ordinances. If you're a man, you've got to be circumcised. Ouch. That comes from the law, you know. You've got to keep the Sabbath day holy. You've got to observe the Jewish festivals. Now, obviously, this, this teaching had a Jewish component to it. And there were synagogues there. You had to follow certain commandments of men that they erected. Do not touch this. Do not handle that. Do not taste this. And they had to observe certain rules and laws when it came to drinking and eating. They weren't free to eat or drink what they wanted. And they were being taught that if you don't observe these things, then judgment came to you and you would not enter into, you would not experience, you would not have the fullness of God. You would, you would be barred off from that. That's number one. Number two, they were also being taught something that resembles the uh, mystical religions of that day, the pagan mystical religions, which had to do with worshipping angels. That angels were intermediaries between man and God, and they had to be rightly aligned with the angelic world. And there was a fascination in some way with angels. They also taught that one of the marks of this fullness, if you really have the fullness of God now, you'll have visions. You'll have visions. And you must severely abase your physical body. Now, we don't know exactly what they were teaching there, but let me tell you something. Throughout church history, if you look at the the monasteries of the medieval period, some of those men would flog themselves to try to get closer to God or to try to avoid temptations. There's one guy in the 5th century, his name was Simeon, he was a, a monk. He lived for 37 years on a pillar that had a little platform on it a pillar that had a platform on it. He lived in the 5th century. He lived there for 37 years. Incredible. I couldn't do that. I tip my hat to him on one hand, but on the other hand, I have to wonder, was he abasing his body needlessly? Now, we may say, well, you know, that's all weird, Frank. You know, I can't really relate to this letter. I mean, I don't know, I'm not into any of that stuff. Well, two things. One is, I have seen in my lifetime movements that were very similar to what was going on in Colossae. And they're on the planet right now. Number two is, it doesn't matter what the doctrine is, the antidote is always the same. Most false doctrines, listen, come down to one or two things. And sometimes they embrace both. Most of the time it comes down to a performance-based, legalistic approach to knowing God. You have to do X, Y, Z, or else God is not going to be happy. You have to do A, B, C, 
or else you're not going to experience what God wants you to have. And now the focus gets off of Jesus Christ and off of Him and there's nothing that's on the radar screen about living by Him. It all becomes what I'm doing, what I need to do. And the, the end result is Christians become judgmental of other Christians because now they're measuring on this very human metric. Well, you don't do this. He doesn't do this. So he must be... Or they become in their own selves condemned because they can't live up to it either. And you'll hear it come out of their mouths. I'm working on this. I'm getting there. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And by the way, you'll meet them five years later and guess what's going to come out of their mouth. I'm working on this. You know, I'm still... One day, you know, I'm... I need to, you know, hear that language. I need to, I'm working on, ten years later, same thing. I need to, see, because, brothers and sisters, the treadmill doesn't stop. If you get on that treadmill, it doesn't stop. It will go on the rest of your life. Now, there is transformation, but you are not the one transforming yourself. The whole paradigm is different. Paul turns the pyramid upside down and he gets the eyes of the believers off of themselves and what they're doing onto the Lord Jesus Christ who is the one who transforms us. And now let me tell you some of the movements I've been a part of and, and I even run into these people even now because you know I, I write books and I get email. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's unbelievable. People living in the Old Covenant there's 613 laws in Moses and what people do is they cherry pick which ones they want to follow and then they put that on everybody else and my response is if you're going to put that on me brother then you have to be in a house with a flat roof you can't grow a beard do you have a piece of clothing that has mixed fabrics so if you do you have just violated the Mosaic law there is a lack of understanding of what the law was and who Jesus Christ is. But people, they pick and choose, and they're taught this from movements. There are people that will condemn you for what you eat or what you don't eat, and they'll condemn you for what you drink and what you don't drink, and they'll condemn you for teachings and commandments of men that have nothing to do with the New Testament, and you can't even find it there. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, we can sit here and talk about all of, all the different... I can make a list of 500 things that you're not supposed to do according to all these various Christians. It's the same spirit, brothers and sisters. It is the commandments and teachings of men. It's the spirit of it. Uh, the other thing is, I have been around movements that would basically say, if you don't have visions, and if you're not seeing angels then your walk with the Lord is sub-par. You really don't have the kind of relationship with the Lord that you should have or you could have if you're not having visions and seeing angels. I think there was only one time in my life where I may have, and I say may because I don't know to this day, but you know how uh, Hebrew says, be hospitable because you may be entertaining angels unaware which seems to indicate that angelic beings sometimes appear in forms that you would not recognize them. 
Now, in contrast to that, there are ministers. There's one minister who was very popular for a short time, and now his star faded. But he was uh, seeing angels every night. You know, and he'd go into a meeting and say, I see this angel, and he would talk to the angels. And uh, boy, that comes close to what I'm reading here. The fruit of his ministry was proven to be that I don't think he was seeing angels. He was he was seeing anything. He was the result of maybe pizza he was eating every night or something worse. I don't know. Or maybe he was seeing the wrong kind of angel. But it bordered on worship. The fascination with angels bordered on worship. Now this happened what six months ago or a year ago. I mean, he's, I don't know how old I was. Maybe twelve. And this woman appears to me like I turn around she's there it's weird I was in the parking lot waiting for my mother and I was kind of agitated she was in a bank and I was wanting her to come out and uh, this Indian woman she was like Indian she starts talking to me like she knows me and she says so why are you seem upset and I said why well, I'm okay you know and uh, she says I can't remember what she said, but she was very nice. And it was strange. Why is she talking to me? Who is she? And then I turned around. I turned around. She's gone. It's like she disappeared. I don't know. She was a really quick Indian or she was an angel. I don't want her to do it. I don't know what she was. She's very sneaky. Very, very sneaky. You need to feel you're underestimating the sneakiness. But um, that's the extent of it. And, you know, if I see an angel tonight, praise the Lord, that's cool. But, you know, we don't need to be fascinated with angels and we don't need to be putting angels on a pedestal above the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this, in Hebrews, read the first chapter of Hebrews, compares Christ with angels. So there's something going on in the first century with these angels, and I think it still lives today. I mean, you'll find books on angels. You know, it's all about angels. I mean, what's the deal with angels? You know, they're just ministering spirits. They're servants. They're invisible unless they want to be uh, visible. But anyway, what I'm saying to you is this. The teaching on Christ is so rich, so high, so glorious, that it explodes, rips to shreds any false teaching any teaching that would replace a pursuit of Christ, whether it's the teachings of men, whether it's trying to put us back into the old covenant law, or whether it's this pagan mysticism that has crept into some movements. Let me finish by saying this. And we're going to end here. Go back with me to the story I told about when Paul brought the gospel to Galatia and those four cities. Here was a group of people who had only known tragedy, pain, living on the borders of human survival, malnutrition, sickness, most of which had no cure or treatment. Unhappy, self-centered, occupied with false gods. And Paul comes in and he brings this incredible message that has to do with the Jew from Nazareth who is now and this was part of his message the new emperor he's the new Caesar and let me tell you about this new Caesar and how he's different from the Caesar that's on the throne now 
that message changed these people. For the first time, they were smiling. For the first time, they had joy. For the first time, they extricated themselves from their self-centeredness and they began to love one another. And they began to take care of one another. Something that was never seen in that day in that world. And they spent time together. And they cared for one another's families and one another's children. And they married one another and they eventually buried one another. And the women would walk arm in arm in the marketplace singing for they wrote their own songs and the songs came out of their experience of this new God who they had met who is the real God who came inside of them and gave them life something they never had and the neighboring pagans would look at this and they never saw anything like it who are these people what do they have Look at them smiling. Look at them hugging one another. Look at how they care for each other. And when pestilences would come into a city, and it was a frequent occasion in that day, and wipe out whole populations, it was the Christians who were taking care of one another and taking care of the heathens around them who weren't Christians and they gained a reputation so much so that hundreds of years later the emperor of Rome said these Nazarites not only do they take care of one another but they take care of us as well speaking of a recent pestilence that came through and killed many and made many sick the nurses and the doctors left town but the Christians stayed there and one pagan wrote and it still has survived behold how they love one another that was the witness of the non-believing world that's what that gospel did in that day brothers and sisters the gospel that Paul preached it caused that kind of reaction and the world couldn't help but notice and my closing words here in this initial message on the history of Colossians is that same gospel that same Christ is alive today alive and well and he does the same thing when a people embrace him and learn to live by the life, the indwelling life of Christ that has come inside together. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to learn this Christ together. This Christ that Paul preached. This Christ that caused that kind of reaction in that day. And the same can be said today. Behold how they love one another. There's something about these people that's different. Religion will never give that to us. Going to church will never give that to us. Listening to sermons will never give that to us. Learning how to know Him together. To live by Him together. 
will give that to us for His glory alone. And that's what we're here to do. So there you have it. A very summarized version of the background to Colossians.